You are listening to the Restoration LA podcast. For more, visit us at restorationla.org. Jesus, we are thankful to be here, uh, to be encouraged by your word. Lord, we, we love you and we honor you above all else. And as we have been in this series of, of core values and, and trying to tap into the heart of, of what we should be valuing as a church, Lord, I pray that it is by your spirit that these words are communicated. I pray that it is at the center of your heart that people are hearing and, and not just words and, and, and values and principles and, and anything like that. We want to hear your heart in every area of our core values. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. So I wanted to touch a little bit on something because I think sometimes we can... breeze over things really quickly and, and maybe ask people to digest things a little bit too quickly. And how many of you know when you eat too fast, sometimes it just doesn't fit, sit right, right? And so I want to I wanna go over something again, a little bit of last week's sermon. And last week's value that we shared was all life is worship. Can you say that with me? All life is worship. Every area of our life is worship. And if you remember the spheres that I brought out, um, I hope that wasn't too Sesame Street for you, but sometimes Sesame Street works for me. I see things and I'm like, oh, that makes sense. Okay. Um, but those spheres and, and, and one of the spheres that, that I used last week that I spoke about and maybe I highlighted more than others and, and I want to revisit that a bit. And that, and that's in the area of finances and, and why why I bring this up is because finances are a big deal. If you believe finances are a big deal, please raise your hand. They're a big deal. Um, outside of Jesus, finances is one of the major topics that we read or that we, is used in communicating aspects of the kingdom of God. There's just this kind of thread that goes through finances, that resonates with people because how we use our finances is a, is a huge indicator of where we are as a people of God. Can you say people of God? Listen, we are a people of God, which means how we handle our finances should look different than how the world handles their finances. How many of you believe that? Being a people of God, how we handle our finances, and not just handle our finances, but how we submit our finances to the Lord should be, it, it is, should, should be peculiar. It should be weird to the world. I've told you time and time again, when I go to do my taxes, you know, um, not my tax person now, but the one I had before, was like, why do you give so much money to the church? You cannot afford this. And so obviously my answer is, I'm not giving money to the church, I'm giving money to Jesus. And the other thing is, I can't afford not to. I can't afford not to give to the Lord. And, and the reason why is because I am prioritizing. If you remember that word that we use as being G a Jesus-centered people, he is my priority. There's no other priority but him. We have prioritized him to be the central theme and focus of our church, to be the central theme and focus of our lives. So he should be the central theme and focus of my money. 
And if he is, what I do is I prioritize him. And how scripture has asked me to prioritize is I set aside that tenth that goes to him without question, default, automatic, it goes to Jesus. And it makes things so much easier, right? Can you think about this? How many of you get your taxes pulled right out of your check? Doesn't that seem a little easier that the money just gets pulled right out? I mean, it hurts. It doesn't feel good, right? But it gets pulled right out of your check. How many of you think that you would be able to do it easier if you got to keep all your money and then at the end of the year, you pay all of that at once? How many of you think that would be easier? I mean, it's, it's impossible. It's a, it's a huge number, right? I mean, some people in this room probably get taxed up to 30%, which is a lot of money. You get paid $1,000 a week, $300 goes straight to Uncle Sam. That's an ouch, right? Now, can you imagine you times that times 52 weeks and then, man, I haven't set that aside. When if we prioritize it, it goes straight to, to Uncle Sam. You don't have to worry about it. Pressure free. I'm good. When I go see the tax man, I'm all right because I know I've already paid those taxes. It's a poor analogy because I want to say this to us, friends. Finance, or tithing is not a God tax. It's not a tax. It, it, if tithing is, is, is not even a, a, a rule and a regulation or a law that you are going to die by, you're not cursed. Let me say this to you. You are not cursed because you don't tithe. But let me say this. You are also not going to be able to live in the blessing if you're not tithing, you're just in that place of, hey, I'm giving to the Lord faithfully what I believe I have, but there's promises that come attached to the tithe that are throughout Scripture. And we're not able to claim those things if we are not walking in obedience, listen, friends, with Scripture. We want to be a biblical people. We're not trying to be anything else. We're not trying to be, um, we're not trying to be that church, this church. We're trying to be a biblical people. And the biblical prescription for handling our finances starts, friends, with the tithe. And I'm not saying this because, hey, I, I know this is such a hard thing to communicate. And I hope you guys know this. This is the hardest thing to communicate in the life of a church is about money because of the stigma that comes with the church and the mishandling of finances that we have seen from church organizations. And I get that. But listen, friends, that's the world's scrutiny. That's not our scrutiny. The world can look at the church and be like, oh, look at them. All they want is money and all they want is this. We should have a revelation that is not the church asking for your money. It's not the pastor up and saying, hey, you know, you guys got to give so that I can get a better car this week. You know, it's, it's, we should have a revelation. It is not about the person, the organization we are given to King Jesus. That's a revelation. That's not a, it's not a, a law. It's not a, it's not even a value, friends. This is a revelation that we have. So scrutiny on the greed of the church and finances of misconduct of leaders within the church sometimes cause people to withhold. But I, I also wonder about the greed and the financial misconduct of not the church organization, but the church as a whole. My prayer and my hope is that the world's scrutiny would not shape our view of how we honor the Lord with our money. How we honor, how we want to be in biblical and right biblical standing with Jesus as we give 
to him. Biblically, there's no other prescribed method that we see in the new covenant of how to give to the Lord. There is no other. I really believe that if we could have found it 2,000 years now of having scripture, access to scripture and being able to, scholars and theologians to search scripture, I think if there was another method, we would have been able to find it by now. And so today, I, I know most people need more than just chapter and verse, right? And, and, and the, what I can offer you, friends, is revelation. Seek Jesus's face. Ask the Lord. Go to the Lord. Look at scripture for yourselves. Devote yourself to the scripture. You begin to research and say, Lord, what is your mandate on my life? And how am I to honor you with my finances? There's the go-to verses that we all know, and some of these can be used as legalism, but I want to present them in a way that you can just hear and understand. Malachi 3 is, is a normal um, verse that gets thrown out when pastors want to beat up the church for not tithing. This is not what Scripture is used for. Scripture is used for edification and for encouragement. So when you read Malachi 3.8, you shouldn't be discouraged and feel like, oh, I'm going to hell now because I didn't tithe last week. That's not what you should be feeling. But this is what Jesus said to the children of Israel in the Old Testament, and yes, in the Old Covenant. But listen, again, there has been no breaking of this tithe within the New Covenant. I'm going to present something to you. Malachi 3.8 says this, Should people cheat God? Obviously, you and I would answer, of course not. Yet you have cheated me. He's talking to, to the children of Israel. But you ask, what do you mean? When did we ever cheat you? And then God said this to them, you have cheated me of the tithes and offerings due to me. So there was, there was, a, there was not just a value, there was a, there was a worship that was expected from God of his people in regards to the finances, and that was to bring the tithe to him. The argument about this verse, many would say, hey, well, that's Old Covenant, that's Old Testament. That doesn't translate into the New Testament. Let's read it. I want to get into the New Testament a little bit, but I want, I want to read this. Matthew chapter 6, 24, Jesus is speaking about finances, and he says something that I really think we need to pay attention to. Pay attention to. Jesus says this, no one can serve two masters. How many of you believe that? You cannot serve two masters. And Jesus says this, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to one and despise the other. We can't be loyal to two things. And this is what idolatry is. When we're more loyal to anything other than to God, that's idolatry. And so you can't serve two masters. And so I brought up some things last week about all life is worship. And so, listen, as parents, if we, if we live to serve our kids over Jesus, then honestly, we're slaves to our children. And that can very easily happen. If we're a slave to our employer over, over Jesus, that can very easily happen. No one can serve two masters. If, if serving Jesus is always a coin flip, right? Well, let me see. I got this going on or this going on. Let me flip a coin and see. If, if it's a coin flip, then Jesus is not master. If he's not master, it's, it's either he is master or he's not. Because if he's master, then there's no question. If it's between Jesus and my wife, Jesus wins. If it's between Jesus and my children, Jesus wins. If it's between Jesus and my boyfriend, Jesus wins. If it's between Jesus and my job, Jesus wins. There, there should never be a question. We can't have divided loyalty in the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is saying this, but he's also speaking about this matter of money. And I want to I point this out. 
The second part of that, you cannot serve, listen to this, in the New King James Version would say this, you cannot serve God and mammon. Other versions would say you cannot serve both God and money. The word mammon that's used there, it's, it's in Arabic and it's in Syrian. And that word mammon in Syrian means the deity of wealth, which means the God of wealth. And that wasn't God Jehovah. We're not talking Jehovah Jireh who provides all things. We're talking about a, a, a principality, a God of wealth. It's a Babylonian concept because when you think about how, how this God operates over a, over a, a, a sphere, this is what the God of Mammon does. When we are slaves to money, we have no idea the principalities that are operating over us. It's not God, Jehovah Jireh, who is wanting you to be in bondage with debt. Serious talking to me. <laughs> it's not God, Jehovah, who wants you to be in bondage over debt. That's oppression that comes from somewhere else. So you cannot be, uh, here, you cannot, sorry, you cannot serve both God, Jehovah, and mammon, money, or the God of money. It's, it's, we cannot live in that tension. God has to be Lord, and especially Lord in this area over our finances. If you believe that, say amen. You can't serve two masters. Friends, I think we need a revelation of worship when it comes to the finances, when it comes to, uh, and how that relates to Jesus revelation of our finances, that they go to Jesus. Listen, I want to help us with this. And I'm not going to get into the entire chapter. I'm going to give you homework because we have another value to get to today. I'm going to give you homework. Hebrews chapter 7. In Hebrews chapter 7, I want you to go and I want you to read through this. I really believe there's a link between the old and new covenant tithing when it comes to this chapter. I encourage you to go and read it. I encourage you to go and discover Listen, the first tithing we see in scripture, um, the tithe was given to Melchizedek. I'm not going to ask you to say that word. It's hard to say. But Melchizedek was a high priest. And the, and the tithe was come and it was brought to the priest, the high priest. And then we, we recognize that Melchizedek was the first in the line of high priests in which the tithe was brought to. And so when those who were bringing the tithe always brought it to their storehouse. So their storehouse was the temple. Our storehouse is, is the local church. And it is brought to the high priest within that local church or there, the temple. So Melchizedek was the first in the line of high priests. And so listen, there is no high priest here at, at Restoration Los Angeles. There, there is no senior pastor. We are led by a team of elders, which I am one of them. And so within that, you're not bringing the tithe to the church and you're not bringing the tithe to a high priest here because the high priest, listen, friends, as we read in Hebrews 7, the only high priest who is in operation in the new covenant is King Jesus. And so we see that this tithe that is brought and that link between old covenant and new covenant as we bring the tithe continuously has been to the high priest and the high priest that we bring it to is Jesus. Jesus receives the tithe. It's not going to man. It's not going to G Jody. It's not going to Brett, Ken, or Steve. It is going to Jesus. Are you with me? Well, we discover that Jesus is the only high priest in the new covenant. And now, listen, friends, it is to him and him alone that we bring the tithe as an act of worship. It's an act of worship that we bring the tithe to Jesus. So listen, please go and read. Go, go read through that. Um, 
Allow the Holy Spirit to lead you, listen, friends, into financial worship. Allow the Holy Spirit to lead you into financial worship. Jesus, friends, in his ultimate wisdom, I don't believe that he left the bride, his church, without provision. Can you just think that? I mean, if I'm going away on a trip, I, I try to make sure that Vanessa is set. Like, hey, here's the money that needs set, you know, money for this and whatever. Make sure that she's taken care of while I'm away. I have to believe in Jesus' ultimate wisdom as he ascended to heaven, did not leave his church without provision. Because can you imagine you just left it up to her? What she would do? Can you imagine if the Lord just left it up to us? I mean, that'd be like Vanessa and I going away. It's like, all right, kids, you know. You tell us what you want to do. Like, no, this is God we're talking about, right? Um, lastly, I want to read this. Uh, um, it was uh, um, some thoughts from another pastor that I, I, I ran across as I was studying this. It says, why the tithe? Many believers believe that we don't, uh, I'm sorry, many believers who don't want to tithe say that there is no Scriptures in the New Testament that tell us, listen, friends, we must tithe. And I say there weren't many scriptures for Abraham and Jacob either. Why would there be scriptures to repeat for us to do something that God has already said can be done, listen, friends, of one's free will? We are living in the new covenant the greater covenant, the better covenant. It is a free will. The Lord wants a chill forgiver. This is not a mandate and a regulation and there's curses attached to it. We are free from the curse. We are free from the law. We are living in the age where we get to choose to worship Jesus in this way. How blessed are we? Can you imagine? We don't have to stress about this. We get to do this freely because we love Jesus. Second thought on, on, on what he wrote. He said, for those who, who don't tithe, knowing that the new covenant is the greater covenant, please ask yourself what you are doing that is spiritually superior than the tithe to honor God sufficiently enough to warrant his favor and blessing in return. So really what he is saying is, is if, if you don't believe in the tithe, but you do believe that the new covenant is a greater covenant, then please tell me what you're doing that is superior to the tithe because we are now living in the greater covenant. Friends, I just want to challenge us in this area of worship. I really believe that the church, the church should not be left in a place of, of, of having to beg saints for things to carry on the mission that Jesus gave us. That we should just do this freely as an act of worship to God and let God be Lord over this area in the life of our church and our individual lives. Matthew chapter 6.21 says, wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. And really what that means is where you place your money, that's where your heart is. And so if you go and take a tally of your finances, look at where you spend your money, check and see where Jesus is on that list. Now, Uncle Sam might, might get more money than Jesus because you might make that kind of money. But is Jesus still the priority? Is Jesus the priority? Are you cool with me? All right, food. so let's switch gears. Are you okay with that? All right, tell your neighbor we're switching gears. All right, I'm going to do this quickly. Um, our next value, you guys want to drum roll on your thighs if you're cool with that. Our next value is love. 
love in action. Can you say love in action? So love in action, if there was, if there was an order of all of these, we already, I already expressed to you guys that number one was being Jesus-centered. That does not move in its place. We offered that first um, as, as we opened up this series. That is number one. Jesus is the priority and will continue to be the priority in our value as a church. If there is an order, this will absolutely be number two. And it's number two because Jesus made it number two. And in order to figure that out, we have to turn to Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 through 40. And so if you have your Bibles, you guys can turn there. If not, I believe the screen will have it up for you. Matthew chapter 22, verse 36 through 40. And they read like this. Um, But when the Pharisees... I'm going to start in 34, sorry. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees with his reply, they met together to question him again. And one of them, an expert in religious law, tried to trap him with this question. Teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? Verse 37, Jesus replied, here we go. Here's our number one. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, right? Jesus first. We love him first. Jesus is the priority. This is our number one value. This is our number one commandment. This is the first and greatest commandment. So that doesn't change. That position on the list never gets removed. That is our first commandment. But listen to this. Verse 38 says, verse 39 says this. A second. Can you say second? A second is equally important, friends. Listen, love your neighbor as yourself. Love who? Your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. Listen, friends, the entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. If I can boil them down, I don't want to simplify them, but just to help us out, love God and love people. Love God and love people. These are the two greatest values that we have as a church. We love Jesus first Second, we love people. Love in action is our value. And this is what that value looks like for us when we scripted it out. God loves people, so we love people. It's simple. Jesus gave us a pattern while he was on this earth. We follow that pattern. So God loves people, we love people. We show God's love to the world, listen friends, through actions born of compassion. Through what? Actions born of compassion. Avoiding judgment, we seek to embody the love of Christ, listen friends, through tangible acts of service. This is what love in action means to us as a church. Remembering verse 39, a second is equally important to love your neighbor as yourself. So there's this um, beautiful parable that Jesus gives us in Luke chapter 10, and it's going to be in verses 30 through 37. And how many of you have ever heard the parable of the Good Samaritan? How how many of you have ever heard the term Good Samaritan, right? So to be a Good Samaritan is to be uh, someone who shows up in time of need to help someone, right? Uh, We have the the Good Samaritan's Purse. I think it was uh, um, Graham's kind of um, philanthropy kind of blessing ministry that he has. And so the, the Samaritan, it's, it's actual um, people group in biblical times. And so Jesus uses this story to show uh, those who are listening to him what it means to love others. 
So we're going to start with verse 30 in chapter 10 of Luke, and it says this. Jesus replied with a story. So they, again, they were asking him, what's the greatest commandments? And so he tells them, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your, right? And, and then love your neighbor as yourself. And then some guy thought it would be really intelligent to ask, well, who's my neighbor? Can you please define for us who my neighbor is? And because it would be really easy to be like, oh, you know, the guy that lives next door. Like, all right, I can love that guy. So Jesus defines it like this. Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. Sorry, I'm going to change this screen real quick. He was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him up. They left him half dead beside the road. Verse 31, by chance, a priest came along. Now listen, this is a Jewish priest now. So the Jewish priest, so a, a Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem. He gets beat up. He gets left on the side of the road. A Jewish priest comes, uh, and then when he sees a man lying there, he crosses to the other side of the road to pass him. Now you have to understand, there's, there's, some, there's some, you know, probably some theological understanding of why he did this, right? And if he was a priest, he was probably going to temple. He was probably going to be performing rituals that he had to perform as a priest. There's no way that he could have touched an unclean man who was dying on, on the side of the road. There's no way that he could have interrupted his religious activities to help someone who was beat up and left for dead on the side of the road because for him to touch a bloody man would have tainted him. Therefore, he couldn't have performed his religious rituals. You hear me? So he just passes on the other side. Then, 32, a temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Two people, both temple workers, both those who were considered religious people, those who were worshipers of Yahweh, were on their way probably to church, to temple, and then see this man and decide to walk on the other side of the road. And then we, we are in verse 33. Then a despised Samaritan. Can you say despised? A despised Samaritan. And what that would look like for us today would be that people group that you absolutely do not get along with, which I would pray in the life of our church and in, in this day and age would be no people group. But you have to understand the tensions in which they lived in Jerusalem. It would be just like today over there. If there was a Muslim there, it would have been that kind of tension, a Muslim and a Jew. A despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion. He felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of him. The next day, I'm sorry, take care of him. Take care of this man. Sorry, guys. Trouble with my glasses now. These are new ones, and they're not working. Take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay the next time I'm here. And then Jesus asked this question in verse 36. 
Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by the bandits? Which would you say was the neighbor to the man who was attacked by the bandits? Was it the priest who walked on the other side when he saw the bloody man? Was it the, 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 the temple assistant who did the same thing, saw a bloody man and was like, no, I can't be tainted by that. I'm on my way to church. Or was it the despised Samaritan who took the time to get down on his knees, to bind up? You got to believe that this man was got this man's blood on him. He got messy. He was willing to engage. Olive oil, wine, dress the wounds, places him on his donkey, takes him to an inn, takes care of him, pays the innkeeper, and then says, if there's any any fees beyond what I'm giving you now, charge it to my account. So Jesus asked, which one was was the one who, who was a neighbor? Verse 37, the man replied, the one who showed him mercy. The one who showed him mercy. And then Jesus said, yes, listen, friends, now go and do the same. Yes, now go and do the same. Jesus' encouragement, I believe for us in this, in this time, is be the one who shows mercy without judgment. Be the type of people who shows mercy without judgment, without caring what, what, what nationality they are, without caring about what their lifestyle is, without caring what, what, what brought them to the place that, that happened to them. I mean, just think about it. I mean, can you think about today's day and age? We see a man bloody on the street, lying down. Just think about your own scenario, how you would picture this, is how I would picture it. And you start thinking like, man, what did that dude do? Man, what, what, what was he involved in? Like, I don't, oh, never mind. I was going to bring up a movie. <laughs> was it Goodfellas? A dude gets stabbed and he walks into, uh, he walks into the restaurant. And then one of the kids starts getting all the aprons to help this bleeding guy. Right? He gets all the aprons and he's helping this guy who's bleeding. And then the owner of the restaurant is like, what the heck are you doing? You're messing up all the aprons. I mean, this guy's bleeding, dying. And then they, he's calling the young guy, oh, you're a jerk. Why would you do that? You ruined perfectly clean aprons for that guy. He probably deserved it. Do we, do we, do we think with those critical things, those critical thoughts, or, or, are we showing mercy without judgment? Be the one who is willing to choose inconvenience over comfort. Be the one willing to sacrifice resources and finances, listen, friends, for the sake of others. Be the one willing to risk reputation and status. You have to believe that that priest, knowing that that was a Samaritan that entered his mind, I can't be, I can't be messing around with a Samaritan. I'm, I'm a priest in the Lord's church. I can't be mixing with Samaritans. There was a cultural divide between the Samaritans. We remember this when Jesus spoke to, spoke to the Samaritan woman at the well. The, the, the disciples are like, what is he doing speaking to her? We have to be willing to risk reputation and status for the sake of others. Listen, friends, even if they might despise you. Can you imagine? Go and do the same. I think 
that we, if we're honest, friends, I think we see the needs of the world around us. And as we see those in need, if we're honest, we probably have more of the mentality of, that's not my neighbor. That's not my neighbor, right? But if you look at that parable that Jesus gave, and, and the man asked, who is my neighbor? When you read that passage, Jesus never answered that question. He never answered the question of who your neighbor is. He said this, you be the neighbor. You be the neighbor. Because this question at the end of that, in, uh, in verse 37, uh, or verse 36, Jesus said, now which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by the bandits? Jesus isn't asking you to worry about who your neighbor is. He's asking you to be a neighbor. He's asking you and I to love as if this person we knew and we're in intimate contact with them. This is what a neighbor is. Someone who is in close proximity. Someone who we're familiar with. He doesn't answer the question. He says, be a neighbor. Go be a neighbor. Go and do the same. Go show compassion. Go show mercy. Go love the unlovable. Go do the same. This is what being a church that puts love in action looks like. When we think about that, I mean, we're in Los Angeles, California. We can, we can think about the needs of those who need to be loved, and we can see that the need is way too great. Just think about homelessness. I mean, if you think about homelessness, I mean, it's a beast. I mean, there is is millions upon millions and millions and millions of dollars that are being pumped into our city, into Los Angeles, that are only, I mean, scratching the surface of what needs to be done to love and care for these people in need. And we, as a church, can look at that as, as people of God and be like, it's just overwhelming. They can't fix it. How do we fix it? And listen, friends, we cannot be overwhelmed by the greater picture. Jesus has asked us to be a neighbor. He has asked us to love our neighbor. He's not asking you to solve homelessness. He's not asking me to solve homelessness. He's not asking me to solve world hunger. He's asking me to be a neighbor. He's asking you to be a neighbor. He's asking you to love. I often hear when you talk, when we talk about homelessness and, and you talk about like, you know, kind of mercy and justice ministry, you know, there's always like that, that tagline from, from, you know, some religious people and say, yeah, but Jesus, didn't Jesus say that the poor will always be among us? How many of you have heard that? Right? So, so what's happening is, is that verse is being used as a scapegoat of why we don't care for the poor. Because Jesus said that the poor will always be among us. And so if they're always going to be among us, what use is us of even helping out? They're always going to be here. I need us to read the context of that verse. Matthew chapter 26, verses 6 through 13. Jesus says this. Meanwhile, Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon, a man who had previously had leprosy. And while he was eating, a woman came in with a beautiful alabaster jar of expensive perfume and poured it over Jesus' head. The disciples were indignant when they saw this. What a waste, they said. 
It could have been sold for a high price and the money could have been given to the poor. Right? And so they see this, this act of worship of Jesus. And then the disciples see that. And what a waste, because they're not thinking about her worship of Jesus. They're thinking about what she just wasted. Right? But Jesus, aware of this, replied, why criticize this woman for doing such a good thing? Listen, friends, to me. To me. To who? To Jesus, the Lord, the Son of the living God, Emmanuel, God on earth. This was an act of worship, right? Verse 11 says this, you will always have the poor amongst you, but you will not always have me. And so Jesus wasn't saying the poor don't matter. Don't worry about the poor. Don't worry about giving to the poor. What he was saying as in priority, Jesus is first. Jesus comes first, which is our priority. Love the Lord your God first. And then we love others. The worship of God comes first. Because I'm telling you, if we are to justice ministry without the love of Jesus, I'm telling you, friends, that's the, the greatest injustice we can ever give the world. If we are just giving the, the world a, a sandwich and a smile, you know, that's a good thing. But a sandwich and Jesus, friends, is a whole lot greater. Are you with me? Jesus is still the priority. It doesn't mean that the poor is not the priority. I'm just trying to bring clarity to this. Are you guys with me? Um, you always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. She has poured this perfume on me to prepare my body for burial. There was a prophetic thing that was being enacted right in front of them, and they missed it. And Jesus wasn't throwing out the baby with the bathwater and saying, don't worry about the poor, just worry about me. What he was saying is, right now, in this season, I'm the priority. And I really believe that for many saints, we need to know that too, that Jesus is the priority that you need to be a worshiper of Jesus, that you need to be in the face of Jesus, that you need to be at the foot of Jesus. You, we need to be followers of Jesus above all else. But that doesn't dismiss the fact that there are people who are hungry, lonely, sick, and need a touch from the people of God on behalf of Jesus. This is where love and action comes from. It's not separate from who he is, but it is tucked underneath who he is. This passage doesn't say that the poor don't matter. The life, the ministry, and the teachings of Jesus are proof that they absolutely do matter. Jesus was always prioritizing the vulnerable. Jesus was always prioritizing those who were the least of these amongst the people groups in which he ministered. And we have to be very aware of that, friends. The church should be the only organization on this planet that exists for its non-members and especially those who are most vulnerable and need to feel the loving touch of God. And it happens through his church. James chapter one, verse 26 through 27 reads like this. If you claim to be religious, but you don't control your tongue, you're fooling yourself and your, religious, and your religion is worthless. But verse 27 says this, pure, say pure, and genuine, say genuine, Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means this, friends. Caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. This is what pure religion looks like. And so we can be religious people, right? And we could be the people, I go to church every Sunday and I, I read my Bible all the time and I do this and I do that. And, and, and James is telling us, you know what pure and genuine religion is? taking care of the widows and the orphans, 
This is what real religion looks like. And I believe this is not only uh, um, literal, I believe this is also figured to, we need to take care of widows and orphans. It's a priority in, in, in the life of our church that we want to take care of those things. This is why we partner with all of Crest Ministry who will be here at our All Saints meeting today to remind us that there are, are foster children and orphans out there that need love and a touch from the life of the church and widows. So we need to take care of those who are the most vulnerable. There's, we have a, a, a widow in our church that, that the life of our church just loves and cares for her as often as they can to ensure that she is in a good place because we love her. And it's not just because it's a mandate, right? But it's also figurative. What I mean by figurative, it doesn't just stop there and say, okay, so pure religion is only caring for widows and orphans. Okay. There's so many more scriptures that we, I don't want to throw at you all today because I'm running out of time. I'm out of time. As a church, I want to leave you with these two questions. You, you okay with that? Number one is how am I loving my neighbor today? How am I loving my neighbor today? And most of us think, yeah, well, why isn't the church doing more things in the community? We'll get to that in the next question. But I'm asking you as the church, you personally as the church, how are you loving your neighbor? What does that look like for you? It could be your, your literal neighbor. How, how are you loving your neighbors on your street, in, in your neighborhood? Oh, man, I have neighbor, I have neighbor issues, guys. Maybe I have time for this. So, so my son parks his car uh, in front of, in front of a, a neighbor's house. And it was the, the car was a blessing that actually Luis Hernandez gave, gave to Jordan, his first car. And uh, it was a 1998 Honda Accord, the most stolen car in America. Um, Honda Civic. And so anyway, so, you know, it, it had, had some miles, had some years on it. It was parked in front of the neighbor's car. The neighbor leaves a note on the car, right? I mean, please don't park your car in front of my house. I don't want this car in front of my house, blah, blah, blah. So I'm like, what are you talking about? It's like, it's a public street, right? So me, I, I just kind of don't let things go very easily. Um, I, I take the note, I go up to the neighbor's door and I knock on the door. And uh, Vanessa said it was probably wasn't the best thing to do because I was like, had like my Raider hat on and I didn't have any sleeves. I was out for a walk, so I didn't have no sleeves on. So all my tattoos are showing and she was like, you're going to scare the poor guy. Anyways, so I asked the guy, did you leave this note, you know, on, on this car? He's like, uh, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, and so I'm like, why would you do that? Like, what, what, why does it matter if, if my son parks there? And he's like, well, why can't he park across the street or something? I'm like, why does it matter? Like, it's a public street. Like, I live on this street. Well, which house do you live in? Like, it doesn't matter. Like, I, I live on the corner house. And so anyways, it was, it was just upsetting to me that it was, that he was perturbed by my son parking in front of his car. I'm like, that's not what a good neighbor does. Leaves notes on your car. Don't park in front of my house. Like, that's weird, right? So anyways, why this story matters to me is, and you don't know this person. You'll never know him. I have tons of neighbors. You won't know which neighbor it is. Anyways, we, we got to the bottom, and I was just like, look, dude, that's just rude. I mean, it's whatever, you know. So 
we just agreed to disagree and I walked away. I see this guy later on. So I take Mackenzie and Judah to Boy Scout signups, right? To be part of um, uh, Cub Scouts. So we go to sign up and I see this man in line and he has his grandchildren with him. And so I, I don't want to be, you know, all awkward. So I just tell the man like, hey, neighbor, how are you? It's good to see you again. And she's like, oh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, I'm your neighbor. Remember, I'm the one who lives up the street and, you know, son parked in front of the house. And... <laughs> oh, yes, yes. How are you? Great. Where did, where did your son go to school? And I'm like, oh, um, you know, he's old now. He's, you know, he, he went to school in L.A., you know, had one, one. Anyway, start, long story short, start telling him we're from Montebello. He's like, oh, I went, I, I taught in Montebello. Where did you teach? Oh, at Montebello Christian. I'm like, oh, I got married at Montebello Christian. Oh, really? You know this person? Yes, pastor. All the, we went through all the lines. So now I'm coming to identify that this guy is a believer. And then this guy, at, at, kind of towards the tail end, start, invites me to a 6 a.m. men's Bible study that he wants me to go to. And I'm thinking, I mean, those are cool things. Those are great things. But I'm just thinking this, friends. If I wasn't a believer, what kind of witness would that have been that I'm speaking to a man who left a note on my car to not park in front of his car because he doesn't want it there? And now he's trying to invite me to a Bible study. If I wasn't a Jesus believer and if I didn't go to my own Bible studies, I would have probably told the dude to kick rocks, right? I mean, I just want us to be aware, friends. I just want us to be aware that we are Jesus believers and loving your neighbor can be can happen with the simplest of things. I'm listening, but it can also be derailed by the simplest of things. How are we loving our neighbors, right? Lastly, as a church, how are we loving our neighbors? John 13, 35 says, your love from one another for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. How we love the world around us will prove that we're Jesus' disciples. I believe the church is known for far too many things that are ungodly and not this. The church is, is, is labeled by the world of being hypocrites and, and they're, 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 they cast judgment on everyone and all that. We're known by everything else and we're not known by this thing. How we love is how they're going to know that we're Jesus' followers. When we replanted the life of this church, when, when we transitioned from Bella Vista Church to Restoration Los Angeles, we had a significant task ahead of us to let this neighborhood and community know that we were a church that wanted to love them. And friends, we went to, I can't tell you the extent we went to, I mean, to the school systems. I mean, we held summer school here in, the, in this building for six summers for hundred kids in the, it, it, they canceled summer. If you remember, they canceled summer school in LA Unified, we took on 100 kids from first grade to sixth grade and we held summer school here. I mean, we were like a puny church. Summer school here for six summers so that our kids wouldn't fall back in, in, in language and in, and in math. We, we did everything we could to show this community we were here to love them and it was exhausting and it was painful, but I'm telling you, friends, it was worth every minute, every dollar, every ounce of energy so this community would know that we love them. How are we loving the community? I'm telling you, friends, it's a question that we have to ask ourselves again in this season. Last Sunday, we did signups, ministry signups. Honestly, that, that, that ministers to, to us within the life, the confines of this, of this body. 
But there is so much more, friends. Love in action goes outside of these walls. It goes outside of these doors. It takes Jesus to the world around us. And I'm telling you, friends, we have to be more about that today than we ever have been. In the season ahead, we have a desire to promote and provide opportunities for our church to love our community of East Los Angeles and beyond. And my prayer is that this, the life of this church will be on board when this ship starts moving. Our All Saints meeting is going to be a key factor into that. I hope you will be there after service. Grab a burger, be a part of it, and let's see what Jesus wants us to be about. You good? You guys, please stand with me this morning. Jesus, we love you. We love you for the example that you gave us of what it meant to live a sacrificial life for the sake of others. Lord, we want to be that type of love in action. Lord, not programs and and religious activity. This to be a lifestyle for us that we will be the neighbors that you've called us to be to be those good Samaritans here on this earth for the sake of your kingdom, without judgment, without worry, without second guessing, that we will dive in, willing to get messy, to love others. Lord, I pray that this be a revelation for every saint in the life of our church. Lord, for those who maybe have had bad encounters, Lord, I pray that you will give them courage again to step out in faith. Lord, for those who used to do all these wonderful things and used to be part of all these wonderful programs, Lord, I pray that they not live on what was and they tap into what is today. We want to trust you in these areas and we want to see this community loved for the sake of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Hey, love you guys.